Hello, you're listening to Russia Unwrapped with me, Francis Scar, a Moscow-based journalist from the UK. Now, of course, Russia is no stranger to international headlines, but for every dispiriting account of rampant corruption or state-sponsored hacking, this huge country has countless more inspiring tales to tell. I'll be turning my gaze away from politics and the Kremlin as I talk to some Russians to discover their fascinating stories. For the first episode of this podcast, I spoke to record-breaking ultra-runner Oleg Haritonov. In 2002, Oleg smashed the 100-mile world record set 25 years earlier by Scottish running legend Donald Ritchie. Oleg's life has taken all sorts of twists and turns, but as he told me, it is sport like a magnet that just keeps on pulling him back. I asked him to tell me his story. I was born in the Irkutsk region in a small village called Novachonka. The area is known best for Lake Baikal, but I didn't live close enough to spend time there as a child. Of course, it's an extremely remote place. The nearest big cities are Krasnoyarsk and Irkutsk, about 800 kilometres away. There were some smaller towns, district centres. Nearest to me was Chunsky, and Teshet wasn't far either. Teshet is a railway hub in eastern Siberia. For most people, it's difficult to understand where this place is, even for most Russians. Our country is enormous, and nowadays young people find it hard to grasp what Siberia and the Far East are. These enormous spaces, thousands of kilometres. People live there, of course, but very few. As for my childhood, the post-war period, all the way up to the end of the century, was the most peaceful era in our country's history. That's the period in which my parents lived. I myself was born in 1968. When I was a child, there was a certain equilibrium in the country. It was like Groundhog Day. Each day was similar to the previous one, and even each year too. My childhood was a bit wild. We had nothing of any material value. We had a roof over our heads and enough food not to die of hunger. But overall, my childhood was happy because I knew exactly what the next day would bring. Oleg's parents had left their families in European Russia to help build the Soviet Union's last great mega-project, a 4,000-kilometre railway crossing mountains, taiga, swamps and permafrost known as the Baikal-Amur mainline. Back in the 1930s, Joseph Stalin had begun constructing the railway as a second route to Russia's Pacific coastline. It would be further inside Soviet territory than the Trans-Siberian, and therefore less exposed to hostile foreign incursions. Stalin set to his task using labour from the Gulag network of prison camps, and later from prisoners of war. But the devastating impact of the Nazi invasion in 1941 eventually put the project firmly on the back burner. It was only under Leonid Brezhnev decades later that the railway's construction was rekindled. This time, though, rather than using prisoners, the country called upon volunteers from the Komsomol, the communist youth organisation, to join the cause. At the time, the country was constantly building something. The country wanted to link up the Far East and Central Russia with a single railway called the Baikal-Amur mainline. Young Komsomol members from Central Russia 
travelled to Siberia to build it. My dad was called up specifically to work on that project, so my parents moved there to build the railway. But when it was finished, no one knew what to do. They thought they'd just arrive there, earn some money and leave. But they didn't make any money. They pretty much lived in poverty, and most people ended up staying there. Later, of course, their children left to study in big cities. Nowadays, all those settlements are in a real state of decay. Nothing is produced there. The only thing saving people is that now the country has a state budget, so pensioners and people working in the public sector have a salary at least. But if you're neither of those, it's not realistic to survive there. You have to move to the city and find a job. The population in those places is probably around 10% of what it was. They've been forgotten by God and the government. In the end, the railway was all in vain, because there was nowhere for the natural resources to be transported to. Perhaps strangely for a future runner, Oleg told me his love of sport began with boxing, when at the age of nine, a new physical education teacher with a passion for the sport was recruited to work at his local village school. Things were on the up in the country. New schools were being built. I was studying at one of these schools and a new PE teacher turned up, a real professional. Mikhail Grigorievich was his name. He was an athlete himself. I was fortunate enough to encounter him, a man who was just crazy about sport, a boxer. Boxing became my thing too. I was mad about it. It doesn't matter what sport you do, the main thing is to do it with passion. Unfortunately, I only boxed for a few years because I cracked my skull, my frontal bone, during some childish game. I left school at 15 when I could enrol in a vocational college. I decided to enrol on a geological exploration course after someone from Irkutsk visited our school to advertise courses at their college. Back then it was seen as a romantic profession. You were out in the great outdoors searching for natural resources. Geologists occupied a special place in Soviet ideology and cultural mythology. In a huge country obsessed with utilising untapped resources from its still largely unexplored territory, they often became national celebrities. Geologists also wrote and inspired reams of literature as well as music and films. So Oleg's fleeting teenage dream wasn't quite as unusual as it might at first seem. So I got on the train and set off for Irkutsk to enrol. In my carriage I met three guys who were enrolling at a physical education college to become teachers. During the course of the overnight train journey I realised I'd made a mistake and that sport was my real calling but I'd already told everyone that I was going to start studying at a geological exploration college. When we reached Irkutsk, I said goodbye to them at their college and tried to find the one I myself had signed up to. I spent half a day looking, but couldn't find it. It was my first time in a big city. Back then, you just had to ask for directions on the street. One person told me to take a left, another one said take a right. I decided to go back to the physical education college and apply to study there instead. They gave me an access pass for the student accommodation block where I found the three guys again, much to their surprise. 
A couple of days later, I borrowed someone's sports kit and managed to muddle my way through the entrance exam. After a couple of weeks, I returned home and told my parents about my decision. Ringing them up was a bit complicated back then, and the letter would have taken a week to arrive, so I hadn't managed to tell them. Oleg told me that his past as a cross-country skier laid the basis for his later success as a runner. But unlike many athletes who begin to train seriously at a very young age, it was only many years later that Oleg would be able to unearth his talent. Everyone studying at the college had to choose a specific sport to specialise in. Obviously I couldn't box anymore. I enjoyed playing basketball at school, but when I went to the coach, he looked at me in shock. I was the shortest boy in my year. A course mate took me to the athletics coach, but the coach just asked him where he'd found such a puny lad. I didn't like that, so I decided not to bother with athletics. Then I went to the cross-country skiing centre, and I noticed that the coach was only a bit taller than me. I realised straight away that I'd come to the right place. He didn't ask me any silly questions, and just told me what time to come to training the next day. Like any child growing up in Siberia, where most years there is snow on the ground for seven months, Oluk had already learnt to ski. But as a village boy with limited resources, he told me he had neither developed good technique nor been able to acquire decent gear. None of the other guys were like me. Some of them already had achievements under their belt, but I didn't. All I had was enormous desire and natural endurance. I was born in the countryside and would spend whole days shifting buckets of water. I had always been on the go, doing physical work. The city kids had proper skis and boots, and they would laugh at mine. Skiing is technically very difficult, so everyone was faster than me. But in the summer, when we would just run in the forest, I'd beat everyone. My coach noticed, of course. I spent three years at the college, and by the time that I had begun to get the hang of the technique and started to be successful, it was already time to leave. By then, I was 18. I decided to enrol at a university so I could stay in Irkutsk, but on a different course, again geology, because the city didn't have a specialist physical education university of its own back then. Unfortunately, I failed the entrance exams, so I had to go back to live with my parents and work at a local school as a PE teacher. The school was 10 kilometres away. Every day I ran there, did my lesson with the kids, and ran back home again, 20 kilometres a day. A year later, I was accepted on a physical education course at a university at Ulan-Ude in the Republic of Buryatia. I spent four years studying there. While there, I didn't run, I only skied. I began winning things on a national level, just as I was finishing my studies, but I had to find a job then. I managed to keep it up alongside my work as a PE teacher. It was at this stage that events in the country caught everybody by surprise. An ultimately unsuccessful coup attempt by Communist Party hardliners in August 1991 severely weakened Soviet Premier Mikhail Gorbachev. It set off a chain of events that would lead to the country's disintegration in December and the emergence of a new Russian state. The developments were celebrated across the West as the end of the Cold War, 
but for ordinary Russians, the ensuing collapse of the country's socialist economy was about to make life very tough indeed. As people saw their personal savings disappear almost overnight, a number tried their luck in the country's emerging market economy. Then, at some point in 1991, the Soviet Union just imploded completely. I was a young guy who just wanted to compete as an athlete, but before me lay a country of absolutely nothing. I'd go to school and teach classes, knowing that I wouldn't be paid anything. Because I couldn't survive as a teacher, I had to find something else to do, so I got involved in business. I left the school because they couldn't pay me a salary, and started working as a broker at the trading market in Milan Udea. I did that for five years, buying things on the cheap and selling them at a profit. Over those five years, the state managed to put things a bit more in order. People like me got caught up in disputes. Some of them weren't even businessmen, they just used their fists. To some extent, I guess you could say I got caught up in the middle of all that. Oleg told me about one deal in particular which prompted him to make a change. I went to Rostov-on-Don and at a plant there I bought a shipment of champagne to sell in Ulan-Ude ahead of the new year. I handed over the money and arrived back home. But it turned out that I'd given my money to some shysters who never sent me the champagne. And I'd taken out a loan from a bank to pay for it. As a result, I owed the bank millions of rubles. I spent a year trying to get my money back, and in the end, decided that I was sick of that life. I had to change things. I sold most of what I had in order to pay off my debts, and then I left Day. I arrived in Yekaterinburg in my car, with my wife and a young child, with enough money for a flat, and not much else. With Russia now on the mend after almost a decade of political and economic upheaval, Oleg arrived in Yekaterinburg, in the Ural Mountains, over three and a half thousand kilometres west of Ulan-Ude. He was now free to pursue his long-held sporting ambitions. There my new life began, and I began it with what I had dreamed about since childhood, with sport. I'd grown up and been through it all. Now I could just get on with being an athlete. You know, in order to achieve something big, whatever it might be, the main thing in my view is to have a goal and a dream. You have to spend as much time on something as it requires, and that might be more time than you have. You can't stop when you tire. You can only stop when you reach your goal. I'd had such a directionless life until then, so I could afford myself such a luxury. I didn't want to go back to how I was living before. It was seriously dangerous. But I had a big advantage over my rivals because the majority of them were ordinary athletes without a past quite like mine. But it would be a couple of years yet before Oleg would ditch his skis for a pair of trainers. I got my skis out and just started skiing. More than I had to. I'd ski until I couldn't ski anymore. Sometimes I'd ski up to 70 kilometres in one go. In a month I might ski up to 1,500 kilometres, maybe 40 hours a week. I started winning races almost straight away, all of them over extreme distances. Luckily I still had some savings from my previous job and could afford to travel abroad. The ruble was strong then too. I competed in Finland and in France, 
but I was already 30, a bit too old to ski fast. I still wanted international success, though, so I started running. I won my first ever marathon, a trail race in 2 hours 24 minutes. A bit later, in 1999, I took part in my first international race, the 100km European Championships in Poland. I came third there and started competing abroad regularly. At that time, things were on the up in the country, and I received financial backing from a local metal processing firm. That allowed me to compete and train pretty much wherever I wanted to, and as a result, I was able to realise the talent I knew I had. Without that support, it would have been pretty much impossible. In 2002, just six weeks after winning a bronze medal at the 100km European Championships in the Netherlands, Oleg and fellow Russian Denis Jalubin were invited to London by the British Roadrunners Club to take on the 100-mile world record set by Donald Ritchie 25 years before. The runners set off at 8am in chilly and damp conditions on the track of the Crystal Palace National the, Sports uh, Centre. Russian who's leading, if he maintains his present pace, it will set a new world 100-mile record with about a quarter of an hour in hand. With his compatriots still ahead, with just 10 kilometres to go, Oleg astonishingly began running at six-minute mile pace before overtaking Jaliban with under a single lap remaining. He set a new world record of 11 hours, 28 minutes and 3 seconds, the equivalent of running almost four three-hour marathons back-to-back. The record stood for almost 17 years until last August, when American athlete Zach Bitter beat it by around nine minutes during an indoor event in Milwaukee. In the past, things were completely different to today. Nowadays, it isn't seen as unusual to run 100 kilometres or 100 miles, completing such a distance. When we ran it, it was something unusual in and of itself. Only professionals ran that kind of distance then. You had to be really trained up. I ran 10,000 kilometres a year. When I missed a run, I had to make it up. Sometimes I'd have to run over 300 kilometres a week. Simply to finish a race of 100 miles, you didn't need to train so much, but to run 100 miles quickly, you have to. In 2006, Oleg fulfilled a long-standing dream with victory at the Comrades Marathon, a 90-kilometre race held between the South African cities of Durban and Pietermaritzburg. The largest and oldest ultramarathon race in the world, Comrades was established in 1921 by World War I veteran Vic Clapham as the ultimate test of endurance, a personal challenge worthy of commemorating South Africa's fallen. The race is now such an integral part of the country's sporting calendar that the leading national TV channel covers it live from the start at half past five in the morning until the cut-off point 12 hours later. Oleg is clearly proud of his achievement, but I'm also struck by his modesty as he casts his mind back. I needed seven years to win the Comrades Marathon. My first race there was in 2001. To begin with, I knew I didn't have a chance of winning, but I had to complete the journey, so I went back every year. Some years I didn't run well, but I knew I was getting closer. My results gradually improved, and I finally won in 2006. But, uh, here's a big group, uh, Nuri, and uh, looks like Oleg Kotonov leading this uh, big group through. There's Vladimir Kotov coming through. So a pretty strong group. If you're not born a champion, then with most things, you're unlikely to become one. For example, if you were born around the same time as Usain Bolt, you're not going to win anything while he's still around, unless he full starts or gets injured before the race. But you can wait for him to retire and win once he's gone. 
My plan was the following, to travel to South Africa for the race every year and to be in good shape every time. At Comrades, there were champions just like Usain Bolt. I had to sit tight. I waited for one guy to retire and had my chance before another champion started running. If you're not born a champion, you have one job, to sit tight and be ready when your chance comes along. Around the time Oleg won in South Africa, he was approached by Oleg Kulkov, a budding Russian marathon runner with his eyes set firmly on the 2008 Beijing Olympics. This proved to be the launching pad for a coaching career to rival his own success as an athlete. I started coaching in around 2006. I was at the peak of my own career then. A young distance runner came to me and said he wanted to get in shape for a marathon. Up to then he'd been running 5Ks and 10Ks, and so I prepared him for the Olympic marathon in Beijing in 2008. I eventually coached him to a personal best of 2 hours and 10 minutes. Nowadays, though, most of all, I want to coach a winner of the Comrades Marathon. That's my dream. Over the past 10 years, my athletes have won more than one medal there, but they're all for second or third place. Now I've mostly moved on to coaching amateurs and para-athletes. It happened by coincidence, but I'm happy that I left professional athletics because there are no opportunities for athletes in Russia at the moment. It's a really hopeless situation, and I don't want to be part of it. I needed some new work, and I was offered a job at a specialist sports college for disabled athletes. There I met a blind cross-country skier called Oleg Antipin. He wasn't a runner back then, but I became completely invested in him. I convinced him to start running. He had his doubts to start with, but within two years he had become a Paralympic athlete. He was geared up to run the marathon in the Rio de Janeiro Paralympics in 2016 and was even given his national team kit. But then the International Paralympic Committee decided to punish our team for doping at the Sochi Games in 2014. So our para-athletes never went to Brazil. It was a disaster. What's more, the athletes were being punished for something that had happened at the Winter Games, not the Summer Games. So we embarked upon another four-year training cycle and we were in the team for the doomed 2020 Tokyo Games. At this time, at least, he wasn't given his kit, because it wasn't just us who couldn't go. No one did. But Oleg and I aren't giving up. We're waiting for Tokyo 2021 to take place next year, and our preparations continue. That was Oleg Kharitonov telling me his extraordinary life story, how he rose from humble beginnings in a Siberian backwater to being the fastest ever man over a distance very few of us can even imagine running. If you enjoyed Oleg's story, join me again next time as I take a step away from the news with another guest to dig beneath Russia's surface.